0: Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Renoites. Normally the show comes out on Tuesdays, but here we are on a Saturday with a new episode. My name is Connor McQuibby. I'm your host as always. Once a month or so, we do a live episode taping at Black Rabbit Mead. This week I had the opportunity to sit down with Pete Menchetti. He runs a company called The Sticker Guy. It was one of the first internet-based sticker companies. Right here in Reno, about 30 years ago, Pete started The Sticker Guy and worked with a lot of local bands. He's very involved in the music industry, runs several music festivals, and the music festival Debocherino, which is happening next weekend at Wingfield Park and Cyprus. We had a good conversation about the music industry and music scene here in Reno, about how Reno's changed over the years, about the early days of The Sticker Guy, the current festivals that Pete is running around the world. We Are Loud Fest, which has a different country off in a different continent every year. Really good to learn about what he's doing since he's been so involved in Reno's music world. The next live taping of Reno Whites is going to be at Black Rabbit Mead on Thursday, July 29th. That one is going to be with Sierra Regional Roller Derby. I'm really excited about that one. Roller Derby is a really interesting sport with a lot of kind of unique culture around it that I don't know that much about. So excited to have some of the roller derby folks on the show to learn all about that sport and what they're doing here in the region. Of course, if you have suggestions for guests for our normal episodes or our live episodes, please let me know. Some of the most fun live episodes have been when we've been able to partner with people who have some other kind of event going on. Spoken Views Poetry Collective was super fun. The Drag Queen episode where we had some drag performances was super fun. So if you have ideas for those live episodes, please let me know. Or for guests on the show in general. You can shoot me an email, connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renowites.com or... Follow me on Instagram, send me a message there. Also a good way to get a hold of me, that's at Rena Whites on Instagram. And now this week's episode recorded live at Black Rabbit Mead with Pete Manchetti. Pete Manchetti, the sticker guy, debaucherino guy, welcome to Rena Whites. Thanks for coming on the show today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, excited to have you here. So this is another live taping here at Black Rabbit Mead. Will Truce, you are also with us, one of the owners of Black Rabbit Mead.
2: Oh, proud to be here. Yes, maybe
0: ma- maybe popping in and out this episode. Uh, so to start Pete, so the sticker guy is a business that I think a lot of people who are involved in Reno's local music scene are familiar with. Cause you've been making stickers, band merchandise for
1: what? 30 years now, 30 years. We're celebrating 30 years with the, uh, with our Devatch Reno festival coming up yet.
0: Right on. And that's this coming weekend. And I know that, so sticker guy is the company that you founded that creates band merchandise and stickers. And it was one of the early kind of internet companies like 30 years ago. That was in the early days of the internet and kind of people's ability to communicate more electronically. Can you talk a little bit about the founding of the sticker guy brand? So you were here in Reno involved in Reno's local music scene.
1: Yeah. Can we you were the first, uh, internet sticker printing company for sure. The first yeah. sticker printing company on the internet. I mean, yeah, definitely without a doubt, because I was a computer science major at UNR in 1992. Um, you know, so back then, you know, Ford Motor Company didn't have a website. Right. <laughs> we had one before all these big companies. In fact, back then, um there there was something called the Net Cops that went after anyone who did anything commercial on the internet hmm. because the internet was supposed to be only for educational use and the military. Okay. So started, that's how it started.
0: But okay, then, you know. So you, so you started with so you had a computer science background but That's you were what also studied oh, okay and but you were also involved, involved in the local music scene too right so how did you start uh, the website like when did you get this idea to combine your love of music with like the potential of a business and the the stickers
1: yeah i was really into music and i was going to see a lot of shows with my fake id <laughs> because back then you know under 21 there was hardly anything happening uh, for all ages Bands usually played in bars Um And I had a lot of ba- friends who played in bands And such and one night we saw This band at the Ice House I don't know if your listeners know but The Spice House used to be called The Ice House, it was a music venue hmm. As was the place across the street What is it, Ed's Fantasy Girls? That used to be a music Venue as well Strip clubs came into town and took over All our music venues Huh. Um but one night at the Ice House, we saw a band that had really cool uh, vinyl stickers. And I thought, I got I to figure out how to make these for my friends' bands. And then it just sort of, I, you know, I was 19 years old. But trial and error, eventually I figured it out. I almost burned my mother's house down in the process. But, um, but I did figure it out because I, I had a laser printer, you know, and I just bought some vinyl and ran it through the laser printer almost burned my mom's house down I was still <laughs> living with her then but, uh, but yeah um, then I found uh, my partner who is still we're still working together 30 years later Jay Jones he's still uh, printing away and uh, at the time his children were children they were um, six and seven years old I believe when we started working together And now they're, um, they're in their thirties and they work, they both work printing stickers. Mm -hmm.
0: How was the, what was the process like going from almost burning your mom's house down by throwing some vinyl in a laser printer to getting to a actual like business that was up and running and operating and starting to grow and be able to fulfill orders and stuff. What were those first, I don't know, was it like a couple of years when you, um, went from trying to figure stuff out to, to being legit and actually making things happen?
1: Um, I think, um, you know, the the trial and error uh, stage was before I got into business, of course. Mm. Um, And I guess I didn't give up. I was working at a car wash. And luckily at the car wash, we had a lot of kind of free time where we didn't really have to do anything. Just wait for the next car to come, Mm -hmm. you know, and if it was a rainy day, nobody came. And I got to sit there and dream stuff up, and I came up with a system for for running a sticker printing company, basically at this car wash, which has been mimicked uh, by all a bunch of other sticker companies over the years. Um, and you know, and uh, so yeah, I mean, it was we grew very slowly. Mm-hmm. That's that's something that's. Um, That's very important. It's something I tell a lot of people who start businesses. It's like, just go, you know, grow yourself slowly because if you grow really fast, you're more likely to fall really fast. Mm. Um, So yeah, that's that's about that's my answer.
0: Yeah, I mean, the common thread it seems with the work that you've done is all music, right? So you were making band stickers for local local bands, right? And now you run a is it record label Slovenly Records. And yeah. you have this music festival coming up this, I think, next weekend. 16th, 17th,
1: and 18th.
0: 16th, 17th, 18th. So you have a music festival coming up. You uh, run a record label. And you have made stickers largely for, for musicians and for bands. Can you tell me a little bit about your early experiences with local bands? Like you said, it was, you know, you're 19 and going to shows that are <laughs> at venues for 21 over with your fake ID. Can you just talk a little bit about that common thread of, of music and why you think that not just maybe making music, but promoting music, right? All the things you do are promoting bands and artists. So can you tell me a little bit about your initial, like, early interest in the, the music world?
1: Yeah. Um, well, after, so basically we start. I started the sticker company. I was still living in my mother's house. And, you know, it, it started to take off just through running ads and, like, really independent small fanzines like maximum rock and roll flip side things like that and um as soon as i had enough money um me and some buddies rented a house with a basement so that we could have all ages shows hmm. so um the basement was big enough to with so a band could play down there with a little audience of like 30 to 50 people um so that's what we started doing and um, we you know we had a three shows a month something like that bands from out of town from all over the country passing through some from uh, other countries too and you know that in addition to the the ads in the magazines and such just helped spread the word around the country mainly and you know back then uh, people were sending in their orders through the mail you know they would send a check or a money order with like a a, a photocopy or a printout, or, or just a drawing of hmm. their artwork, um, and and we would, I would scan it. I started out with a hand scanner, you know, steady hand, just scan it, and uh, and then we'd print them and send them out. So, yeah, that's. I mean, music has definitely it's sort of been a um, uh, a complementary relationship, you know like my promotion and obsession with rock and roll and, and then the rock and roll coming back to me to get stickers printed. Yeah.
0: Tell me more about your musical interests. So I know that a lot of the music you listen to is it's rock music. I was talking to Will earlier that you have an affinity for kind of like this rockabilly, like 50s, 60s, but you have like a broad musical interest. So can you just tell me a little bit more about the types of genres that you're like all of these, I'm guessing kind of house basement shows, were of this kind of punk rock style. Can you tell me a little bit about what styles of music you've been drawn to and why you think that is?
1: Yeah, when I was, you know, when I was a little kid, like five years old, uh, my mom, I started buying Kiss records. My mother bought me a Kiss record when I was like five years old. <laughs> um, so I I got into Kiss because they, you know, whatever, because they spit fire and yeah, they finally got know, they got cool costumes, cool costumes, smoking <laughs> guitars, but. Uh, legitimately, I still like their first... Their early albums. It's good rock and roll with terrible lyrics. Um, but then, you know, that... From there, it transitioned into more, like, metal. Um, and from metal, I went into punk. And punk rock... The The big difference with punk rock is there's... Um, there's a stronger community. And there's also sort of a ethos behind it. You know, the DIY... Um, Attitude that basically teaches kids that you can do you can do everything yourself, <laughs> including playing a band or start your own little company, making stickers or running a record label or booking tours for bands or whatever. So that's you know I became part of this community mm-hmm. uh, when I was nineteen, basically.
3: Yeah.
0: What What was the Reno music scene like thirty years ago for people who weren't here at the time or weren't of that age to be participating in it. Can you just tell me a little bit about what was Reno's Music World when you were coming up in it?
1: Uh, Yeah, it was mostly um, over 21 shows, which, you know, which is crazy when you think that, you know, I started in the early to mid-90s, but uh, the guys from 7 Seconds, Positive Force Records, they started in the early 80s. You know, trying to create an all ages uh, scene uh, in in this town, and I'm not saying they didn't succeed, but they you know it remained very underground mm-hmm. and when when there wasn't when they weren't there doing it, then it was gone basically all that was left was bars mm-hmm. and kind of when I came into the scene, they had kind of. They were still around, but they weren't as active as they were. My first show was actually in 1988. It was 7 Seconds and Circle Jerks and Sparks. Um, But they, you know, mostly, and that was an all-ages show, but most of what was available to me was over 21. Mm. So I used my pencil and scotch tape and created a fake ID and... (laughs) and got into shows that's what it was like back then yeah um and then and then i you know after moving into the basement house starting to do shows there then you know my friends and i started to adventure out and put on shows in other places like the fallout shelter um some of the hair some of the halls around town casa margaritas um all places that don't exist anymore Mm. but but yeah, and it was a cool scene back then, you know. It was very people were excited, you know, because it was it was new um to this it was kind of it was new to to these kids, you know. Yeah. And uh I don't know, a lot of my friends as soon as they could, they'd move to some place cooler like San Francisco or Oakland, you know, Portland or Seattle or whatever. And <laughs> my thing was always like stay in stay where you are and make things happen because it's, it's really, it was really satisfying
0: yeah i think that um, for a lot of young people the idea of not being 21 yet and not being able to go to bars and not being able to do the things that seem like fun that the grown-ups do like that is challenging for a young person so so while you were getting started in the music scene here in Reno you are talking about being underage and not having access to bars and the idea of being a young person who's interested in music and interested in the music scene and kind of creating a space for yourself seems like a big thing that you did. Can you just talk a little bit about that experience of being um, a young person, a person who's not able to go to bars and creating a space for yourself and your friends at the, um, here in Reno?
1: Well, yeah, it was infuriating. I mean, you know, uh, you're taught from the moment you're born that the United States is a, a free country and the freest country on on the planet the only free country on planet earth and everywhere else they're you know they're oppressed and they can't you know they can't do anything and here i am in my own town and i I can't go see a band play you know because it's in a bar Mm. and i'm not 21 i'm 18 but i'm not 21 i mean I. I started when I was younger than that, but after I was 18, that's when it was really infuriating. Mm-hmm. you know, because at that age, I can go to jail, I can go to war, and I can't go see a band playing. Oh you know That's just ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so you know, that just uh, gave more determination to me and my friends to. To make all ages shows happen, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what were these
0: venues like? You talked about like basements, and I know that there's, what is the Ryland House? I think I just heard that uh, Will was asking you about. Can you talk a little bit about these house shows and not just the um, the shows themselves, but like the physical spaces? Like, what were where were these places? What did they look like? What did they feel like?
1: Yeah. Well, the the house that we rented was uh, on the corner of Ryland and Wheeler, five sixteen Ryland. might be the original Ryland house it was before the other two houses that were unfortunately just torn down this town I don't know what's happening in this town they're tearing everything down left and right but um, but yeah it was just a brick house on the corner with a really great porch for hanging out where we had two couches um, and you go down the stairs and there's a basement that fit about 50 people and you know, it was a really cool place to see a show, actually. Mm-hmm. And when it got full, it got sweaty, <laughs> real sweaty. Well, seriously, like the walls would sweat. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: what were what were your relationships like with the band? So obviously, you were going to a lot of these shows. Reno's a pretty small-ish town, especially 30 years ago, right? So I'm sure there were a lot of overlapping connections and kind of intermingling of different genres, that kind of thing. Can you just talk a little bit about your relationships with the various bands and the various musicians and other people who were kind of involved in this like punk underground type of music scene in Reno back then.
1: Yeah. Well, one thing that, um, that is, uh, coming to mind is that often these bands that would come to play, if they lived anywhere near enough, they would come back again Hmm. because they had a good time. And some of them lived as far away as, like, L.A., and they would just be repeat visitors to, to Reno, like mm-hmm. the game. Um, they came, I don't know how many times, two, three, four times to play in Reno, and they drove all the way from L.A. They, sometimes they had another show, like, on the way or on the way back, but usually they just drove up, hung out for the weekend, and, uh, and then went home. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, we, you know, we, we had really fun shows for them to play, you know a basement full of kids uh that really appreciated it because there was nothing else happening whereas in la you know there's a lot of kinds of stuff happening so yeah it just wasn't the same and i think you know we also made it fun for them because you know they'd come and play their show and then afterwards we'd take a walk downtown because was only like a 10 minute walk and go eat you know mm casino food for like a dollar because back then it was really just like a dollar yeah to eat at the casino and uh yeah we had a lot of fun
0: yeah did you feel like you were kind of an ambassador for reno i ha- so i did a live episode last month with brad bynum from the band elephant rifle and one of the things we talked about was when their band goes on tour they kind of feel like ambassadors for reno they're you know meeting people and kind of telling people what reno's about they're representatives of this area so back then when bands were coming to reno did you kind of feel like you were the representatives of that community and trying to show them what reno's about and give them that impression that made them want to come back
1: when i was traveling or when they came to
0: when when they came to reno like back in the day when you were first doing these shows were you uh were you like the welcome party for these bands from out of town and showing them what reno's about
1: Definitely, in fact, um, I was just interviewed by um, another podcast, The Worst Little Podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Rory reminded me that I was the very first person that he met when he arrived in Reno (laughs) because there was something called, uh, can I say cuss words? Yeah, go for it, yeah. (laughs) There was something that Maximum Rock and Roll published called Book Your Own Fucking Life. And what it was is a magazine, because the internet didn't really exist back then, or people that, you know, I was the only one that had an email address back right. then. Um, basically, it was a huge catalog of people around the country who organized shows, who ran record stores, who distributed records or who distributed fanzines. You know, it's like a very, it's like an underground compendium of how to do things yourself. Hmm. you know, contacts from all around the country. And Rory looked me up in Book Your Own Fucking Life. And I think he had just like he was at the airport and <laughs> he called me and uh and I invited him over to my office, the first sticker guy office over on Wells. And uh you know, I was the first person that he met and he ended up staying. Um so yeah, um I think I was kind of back then when I was living here fixed and trying to bring bands, a lot of bands to play here. I think I was definitely an ambassador, yes. Mm-hmm.
0: How did you get into, so Slavenly Records is a record label and a lot of what you do now is like booking, representing, promoting bands, right? So how did you get into that as as work that you were doing? Like when did Slavenly Records begin and kind of how did you shift from I mean, you're still doing sticker guy, right? So that's, yeah. that, it's not that that went away. But when did you kind of add in this, um, this label kind of element of the work that you're doing?
1: Well, actually, the predecessor to Slovenly Recordings was 702 Records. Hmm. 702. When,
0: when we were 702.
1: was the predecessor <laughs> area code to 775. <laughs> it used to be the area code of the whole state of right. Nevada. And I picked that terrible name for my record label.
0: (laughs) and Then they took it away from you?
1: And then, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, And one of, like, the first record we made was for one of the bands that came to play at the Ryland House. Um, They, you know, they, this band came through and they played a good show and we were talking, we were sitting on the couch upstairs afterwards talking and they told me they had, you know, they had just made some recordings and they wanted to make a seven inch record and but they didn't have the money. And coincidentally, you know, sticker guy had just started to kinda of take off and for the first time I had a thousand bucks in the bank in my life, you know. Mm-hmm. So I said, Well, maybe I could put out your record and, and that's how I started the, my first record label. And seven oh two was more of a community thing. You know, it was more of a community record label where I was putting out records by bands that I liked. Mm. My friends' bands Bands that came through There wasn't a, a common thread uh, Aesthetically You know, there was all kinds of different Rock and roll mm-hmm. From like From like uh, Pop punk to Hardcore You know, like stomping Straight edge-ish hardcore To like hardcore punk mm-hmm. Even to a little bit of rockabilly Like the Atomics they're not really rockabilly. They're straight-up rock and roll band. But, but you know, we're all over the place stylistically. Um, Slovenly came about after after I put about 35 records out and I decided that I wanted to make a record label that people could buy just for the label because they, you know, it, there was a, kind of a similar sound between the bands so they could buy the record just because they knew the label and they, mm. they knew what... They had a better idea what sound it was going to be.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's the idea that you were, as a label, kind of endorsing the bands that you knew people would like and people could kind of rely on your judgment. Like, if they were on this label, they knew they'd like those bands.
1: Exactly, yeah. Whereas, you know, I mean, with 702 Records, I think all the bands were good. Otherwise, I wouldn't have made the records. But, you know, for somebody that doesn't know me or whatever somebody has a different taste you know mm. i don't know it's better t- you know the 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 record labels that i was really getting into at the time um had a they were had a similar aesthetic between the bands you know it was more like trashy garage lo-fi garage or mm. um or punk you know and that's what i wanted to do and that's when i started slovenly
0: yeah well, what what was happening in kind of the bigger world of music like let me think 30 years ago it's 2023 that's like what early 90s that we're talking about uh, what was going on in like the world of music and these genres in general like i was punk increasing in popularity was there more broad appeal for the kind of music that you were making was there potential for kind of growth outside of the area of reno or what was what was happening in the music world when you were getting started in all this
1: um well 94 is when i started uh 702 records and that's pretty much the same year that uh punk was kind of being re-commercialized you know was grunge was kind of fade on the down was fading away and then bands like green day offspring all that were kind of coming up mm-hmm. um unfortunately because i didn't like any of those bands really mm-hmm. i did like offspring for a minute there but yeah. they're like their first album
0: I think Offspring was the first CD that I ever bought, so I identify with this, this era of music a little bit.
1: Yeah, I never liked Green Day, but yeah, they got signed to a major label. I respected Green Day because they were on an indie indie label and they played and they were part of the independent scene. But I didn't, I never liked them musically. Then they got signed to a major label, mm-hmm. and then I liked them even less because it, you know, they were part of the. I think they were one of the catalysts to the the second commercialization of punk. Mm. The first being back in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, Mm. after the Sex Pistols got signed to the EMI and all that. Gotcha. Can
0: you talk a little bit more about that? Kind of, because I don't have a strong familiarity with how these larger eras of music have happened. So you mentioned, like, punk had this big kind of commercialization moment in the 70s, and then, like, the pop punk, I know, like, Green Day, The Offspring... Uh, I know the nineties were definitely the pop punk as what I think of as that kind of genre. Has that happened again? I mean, that's 30 years ago. What have you kind of seen with the, the punk, the hardcore, like that uh, genre of music more broadly, what have you seen happen over the last 30 years since you started? Is there more of the commercialization? Is there still space for like indie artists and labels? What does that look like?
1: Well, yeah, there's, I, I mean, that the wave of commercial, commercialization, I'm not sure how long it lasted or if it's still continued. I kind of just tried to ignore it, mm. you know, because, sure, there's always space for underground, more underground stuff. You know, you just have to make it mm. for yourself. Um, and that's what we've been doing. I just kind of ignored the stuff that I wasn't uh, into and did my own thing. And uh, and yeah, there's there's space for everything. You just got to make it for yourself. Yeah, Take it.
0: Right. We talked about, so you have Debaucho Reno, which is coming up, which is a music festival. And I want to know kind of the, the history of that too, because it's not all in one place, right? It's not like a, a full day music festival with a bunch of bands on one stage. It's kind of distributed among a number of venues around Reno. Can you talk a little bit about that model of having multiple venues, multiple bands, and spreading out the the work that you're doing and the idea behind that for Deboccerino has it always been that way and kind of what's the what's the model of Deboccerino in terms of various venues spaces genres and so on
1: well this year um we're going to be in two different venues um we're at the we're at the wingfield park and then at the cypress for the after parties Mm. um we've done this is going to be the fifth Deboccerino. And every debaucherino has been in a different place hmm. because none of the places we've done the other four exist anymore. That's Reno for you. Yeah. you know, what, what What were those places? The last one was the Sands, which is gone. Mm. Before that was the Jub-Jubs, also gone. Uh, and then we also were in the Alley in Sparks, which is not... It's gone, but now it's the space is still... A music venue Hmm. it's been reopened as a music venue recently the ranch house i think uh and before that was the underground um on fourth street which is it's still there but it's more of an electronic music venue i think okay Uh, called the bluebird oh right yeah yeah um and we've also done sort of like side events in holland project which thankfully is still around Mm -hmm. um and some other venues around town, which are still around, but uh, but yeah, in Reno, we're not moving by choice so much. you know if we could do it in the same place every year, it would be a lot easier, mm-hmm. you know, but we're you know we're also sort of gluttons for punishment. We also organize a festival called We're Loud Fest, mm-hmm. which um, every year we move it to a different country. Oh okay. Um, so like the last edition was in Italy. Before that, we were in um, Mexico. Uh, before that, before the pandemic, we were in Vietnam, Istanbul, Naples, Italy again, uh, Puerto Rico. We huh. kind of go all over the place. And it's, it's quite challenging to uh, learn how to maneuver a music scene, a different city, every time. every edition of the festival but
0: over sure yeah no i definitely want to ask you more about kind of that international aspect of the work that you've done because i know that's a big part of what you're doing now is working outside of reno in all kinds of different places here in reno you've mentioned a couple times losing venues and reno's changing a lot stuff gets torn down can you talk a little bit more about that as reno is just a changing city for the kind of for the kind of work that you do the kind of bands that you work with the kind of events that you put on reno is rapidly changing you know it's it's growing it is not the same city it was five years ago or 10 years ago and definitely not 30 years ago so can you just talk a little bit more about the um the impact of reno as a changing city on the kind of the work that you do
1: yeah definitely i mean um you said you asked me if i felt like an ambassador for reno um in the 90s and i have to say, yeah. I was very involved in the community and activism in general. Also bicycle activism, uh, historical preservation. And I was uh, involved in the fight to save the Mapes. Mm -hmm. Um, And seeing the Mapes go down uh, in, I think, 2000 it was, basically led to me giving up on the city. Uh, You know, I basically decided that um, I didn't want to live here anymore. Um, and I moved. I moved to Europe, and I ended up living over there for most of 20 plus years, over 20 years. Um, today, I I don't really live here. I, I'm still based. It's still my hometown, mm. and I'm still my business is still based here. My family's still here, you know. So I I'm here every every year at least once a year. Um, and then you know we do the music the. The anniversary party for Sticker Guy is the Bacharino. We do it every five years, mm-hmm. and it's always in Reno or Virginia City, and, for, and or no, we do it in Reno and Virginia City, not not just Virginia City. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, I mean uh, the uh, impermanence of a lot of these um, places, you know, that should be. Uh, foundations of our community has definitely led to me um, seeking, just like exploring, which yeah. in a way I'm thankful for, you know, because I've seen a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah. Co- compared to other places that you've been or lived, I mean, I have this interpretation because I've lived in, in Vegas as well. And I think that Nevada, both in Vegas and in Reno, there's a tendency to, to tear things down when they get old and replace them with something new. Right. We don't have a strong sense of historical preservation in this state, and I think that's just part of our our business model of tourism and excitement and new things, so there's less of the attention to preservation. So have you seen that as different in the other places that you live? Have you Absolutely. lived other places that are more thoughtful about what they keep, and do you think that Reno could have or could potentially have done things differently? Would we survive Absolutely. as a city if we... Uh, didn't have this kind of like tear down and rebuild model of, of operating?
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, okay. So I moved, the first place I moved when I left Reno was Naples, Italy, which my mother is, was born about 40 minutes from Naples, Italy, in South Italy. Um, but I fell in love with that city. It's sort of like the opposite of what I saw happening in Reno. They don't tear anything down there, <laughs> ever, you know what I mean? And sometimes buildings fall down, which is really crazy and scary, mm-hmm. you know, but they never tear buildings down. In fact, I, in 2004, I bought an apartment in a building that was built in the 1600s, <laughs> you know, a tiny little apartment in a building that kind of looks like it might fall down. You know, it's like there's like wooden um, uh, poles in the stairwell, supporting it, you know. Mm. Um, but, but, yeah, um, I definitely think that Reno could have done things differently, and should have. Mm. And, and that's what I was fighting for, you know. Um, this might be before your time, but the, the, the movie theater on the river, that used to be, at one point it was kind of a park, Because before that, it was a bunch of like a bunch of buildings, restaurants, and stuff. I think there was even kind of a parking garage there, which is not good. But they tore all that down, Mm. and there was kind of a park there. And it was on the river, you know, right on the river. Um, And they announced these plans to build this movie theater, and there was a candlelight vigil with like 400 people protesting the idea. Mm. So, do you think they would? reconsider their plans no, they just went ahead with it and at the same time they were also planning to just demolish the mapes and you know I was looking into things back then and I was an activist, you know, mm-hmm. I was doing my research and the cost of renovating the mapes was something like 19 million dollars I think the cost of building those the movie theater on the river was about 19 million dollars and I was one of those people that was people that was saying, "Why are you going to build a box with no windows on the river? You know, why don't you use those 19 million dollars to renovate the MApes and build a movie theater in there?" Because that would have been 100 times cooler than the movie, the movie theater that we have, which is kind of like strip mall architecture on the river. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, and it's closed there's no windows there. It doesn't make any sense, really. I mean, they should have, there are some restaurants and cafes and stuff on the river, thankfully, Mm -hmm. but that's what should be in place of the movie theater, and that's what those 400 people who came out and protested against the idea of it wanted. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this is another reason why I kind of lost faith in this country. You know, I was a lot younger back then, but I was like, this is supposed to be the freest country on earth, democracy, blah, blah. But there's, all these people coming out and protesting this, um, and we don't get to vote on it. The city was divided on whether or not to demolish the Mapes. You know, I don't know if it was 50-50, because we never got to vote on it, Mm. but we should have. And somebody... (laughs) Okay, it was me and a friend. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Snuck into the Mapes... um, a long time ago and put these giant banners in the windows that said um, the wrecking ball to city hall let the people vote and back then the city hall was basically in perfect view of the mapes mm-hmm. of those windows of the Skyroom windows mm-hmm. and well the the, uh, the banners lasted about I don't know two hours but I do have a photo yeah I'll have to send it to you.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, no, I mean, I think that a lot of the conversations that I have on this show and just generally are about Reno as a changing city and the, the challenges of that, and especially when in the last 10 or 15 years, so we're talking, you know, 30 years ago now, but in the last 10 or 15 years, I think that there's been this huge influx of people to Reno and dealing with the growth in a way that protects things is just incredibly challenging. And even here in the brewery district, there's conversation about, you know, like gentrification and what is what is what belongs here and what doesn't and how Reno is changing. So I think it's always interesting to talk to people who were here a long time ago and having those conversations long before anyone else was here in Reno. Um, so it's, it, it's good to hear your perspective on that as someone who was actively, you know, protesting against some of the changes uh, way before anyone else was paying attention to it.
1: Well yeah, if you want people to care about their community, you have to preserve the places that they might have a connection with, you know. Mm. I mean, part of the campaign to save the mapes was organizing um these older women, senior citizens who had like had their proms in the mapes. Mm. Some of them told me they lost their virginity in the mapes <laughs> literally, you know. And they were talking about like chaining themselves up around the Mapes to prevent the construction or destruction crews from getting in there, mm-hmm. you know, and this is the same reason why um, I've recently made a disgusted social media post directed at the Nevada Museum of Art with a middle finger because they're in order to build that weird boat structure they have there, you know, which I mean it's a cool building, sure, but they could have done it somewhere else. They took down two or three uh, really beautiful old uh, Victorian mansions, and I just came back to town and noticed that another one was gone for their expansion and I'm wondering why do they need to expand? you know it's already gigantic they already put instead of like historic structures, they have this weird like boat cruise ship or whatever like parked in the middle of Reno I mean it's cool on the inside I guess but they could have built it somewhere else where there wasn't already mm. a city that people might have a connection to mm. you know I just unsubscribed for their mailing list today and you know I just don't want I don't, I to don't have anything to do with them anymore mm. you know it's just like stop destroying our history you know art is important but so is our history. So. Mm-hmm. Well, can I ask a question? Sure, cool. yeah.
4: I agree with you. I just, I wonder sort of what, where does the box, stop? Where does the loop start to close? Because right? I heard from people who lived in Reno a long time that people were very divided about having a museum at all. It took a while to get it going, and then you finally did, and people were like, oh, that's great. I've only been there the one time for a show, actually. Um, I forget what it's called, but it's like a folk rock thing they do every month. I forget who organizes it, but it was pretty cool. And so my question is, when you have something that serves a need and there's nothing else that does the same thing, as far as I know, there is no other museum of art, for you now, how do you decide what to sacrifice and what to keep?
0: The question... uh... I think to summarize is, how do you decide when there is a need for something culturally in a city, where to put it, what it can replace, whether it's a good idea or not? Because the museum, I think, does have, it's nice to have an art museum, right? Like, I think that even here in the state of Nevada, Las Vegas doesn't have, I think, like an accredited art museum the way that the Nevada Museum of Art is, so... Yeah. So here in the state of Nevada, we're the ones with like the legit art museum. But the cost of that, as you just talked about, is it has to go somewhere. And a lot of times you lose things that are of, you know, historical importance. And I think that is I don't think there's an easy answer to that. I think that is the debate that is happening constantly in a lot of places, but especially in cities like Reno. They're growing so quickly. And that debate of where do we make room? For the new things, and I don't know, I don't know what the easy answer is on that one because I don't think there is one.
1: Well, yeah, there's most most definitely. I think I said before, I I I like the art museum. You know, I've been inside; it's great on the inside. And we need an art museum. I my solution is to just put it somewhere else. Hmm. There's a lot of empty space in the city. We're not. This isn't New York, you know. Right. There's a lot of um, vacant. There are a lot of vacant lots. Maybe not as many now as when they built that giant boat thing structure, but when they did, there were plenty, you know. And they had there was no reason to take down um, that other the other Victorian. I think it was two Victorian houses they took down previously, except for that. Okay, the the original art museum was there, so they bought the the adjacent lots. And, and, you know, that's just where they, they tore down their old building and the, the building before it, you know. And that's just not the approach that I think they should be taking. Mm. They shouldn't be ter- tearing down historic buildings. If they want to build around them because they need to expand, then that's okay with me. But tearing down anything historic is not, you know. If, I mean, just imagine they want to build an art museum in Virginia City. And they want to, that means they have to take out a block of Virginia City. No. Mm. You know, where do you draw the line? Like, that's, oh, that's old. That's over 100 years old. So you have to preserve that. No, you have to preserve stuff that's even built in 1947, I think, in the case of the Mapes. Right. That was built in 1952, I think. Mm. So it wasn't that old, you know, but I still thought it needed to be preserved. Because of the connection that people had to it, and also because it was, without a question, the most beautiful building in this city. Yeah,
0: yeah. I do want to talk about some of the the international stuff you've done too. I know that we're talked about Reno a lot, but what you're doing right now, especially with the We're Loud Festival and going to other places, and I know there's it's a it's different. In you talked about Italy and like other places that you've lived with his interest in the historical preservation, but also. Musically, So you have traveled to these various places and you're bringing your music festival and your interest in music to other countries, continents, cities all over the world. When did that start and what was your interest in creating music events in other places outside of Reno? So when you kind of left Reno and wanted to live other places, obviously that interest in music went with you. Can you talk a little bit about the early events that you did in other countries and cities and what that's turned into that you're doing now?
1: Yeah, well, when, um, when I moved to uh, Naples, Italy, um, I, I did something very similar to what I did here in Reno. I found a couple of buddies, and we, we got a place with a basement. Only the place we got with the basement was a, a bar in a building that was built in the 1600s. Um, there was a bar at you know there's a bar at ground level, and downstairs there was a hall for concerts um, for a bit bigger though, 130 people fit down there mm-hmm. and that that lasted about a year and a half. Um, but then uh, I moved around you know I, I stayed in Naples for about four years, then I moved around, I moved to Amsterdam, then I moved to Spain, and I moved back to Amsterdam and um, yeah, I don't know. It just came to me in 2015 that I wanted to try. I was going to a lot of music festivals and having a lot of fun at, at music festivals around Europe, especially. I decided I wanted to throw one myself um, in Europe. Because we had done, you know, I had done a couple also here in Reno, starting in 2008. So the first one was in, in, in Europe was in 2015. Hmm. Um And the first one was supposed to be in Amsterdam. Um, I I booked the place, and then I went to Greece. I went to Athens, because we were putting out a record for a band from Athens. And uh, while I was there, I was having a great time in Athens. I got a call from a friend who said that the venue I had reserved for our festival, they gave it away to some electronic techno music event. which infuriated me on a couple of levels. For one, because I, I can't stand that stuff, mm. <laughs> um, and for two, because well, I was a, I was just about to buy the flights for the bands, um, you know, for one of the bands is from Columbus, Ohio, the New Bomb Turks, so I was going to fly them from Ohio to Amsterdam to play for for us, and um, they, uh, you know, I found out I was in Athens. I was having a great time. So basically, I just decided, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the festival in Athens instead. To hell with Amsterdam <laughs> and their techno clubs. Um, so and that's and so the other thing. This is what ties it together. I We're Loud Fest. Um, the sort of one of the ethos of We're Loud Fest is to try to bring fit music festivals to unlikely places, to places that don't tend to get many music festivals. Athens, Greece is pretty isolated like they don't get a lot of bands just like going on tour there mm-hmm. kind of like South Florida like Miami a lot of bands skip South Florida because they got to drive all the way down there and then all the way back up right it's
0: not on the way to anything right. pretty much
1: yeah so um, that isolation um, kind of breeds a special kind of music scene mm-hmm. you know where there's a more tight knit community and the, mu- the musicians don't really get to play in a lot of places because they're so far from them mm-hmm. you know and so that's where I decided I wanted to uh, bring music festivals I noticed the same thing in South Florida because my father used to live in Key West mm-hmm. and I noticed it in Puerto Rico because it's an island in the Caribbean and in Sardinia another island uh, in the Mediterranean part mm-hmm. of Italy um, and, the, and the musicians also, I noticed, were exceptional in these places. So we started doing bringing festivals to these places, and um, from there, you know, I've just looked for places that have good music scenes or growing music scenes that don't get a lot of uh, outside touring bands and festivals and such.
0: Yeah. Do you find that there's more excitement from those audiences and from those people to? Actually, have some attention shown to them that they don't always get.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's kind of complicated because, like in the case of Puerto Rico, it's actually a colony still, disgustingly of this country. And so, since so I come from this country, so um, some people looked at me as, you know, a, whatever, an outside imperialist force or something, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous because. You know, uh, we move every year. You know, so it's we're we're not. I'm not trying to take anything over by any means. I'm just trying to bring the festival to new places. Um, And you know, to be fair, we did it twice in Puerto Rico, Mm. and they were more open the first time. But when we went back the second time, Mm. it was it was different. And it was also after Hurricane Maria, and they were. I think a lot of people were traumatized Mm. still from that. Um, but um, but yeah um, we've also been to Istanbul and people appreciate it yeah it's it's complicated you know like you, you really have to like we really go out of our way to try to bring the local scene out um, but it's hard to we also have an international following and one of the biggest challenges is how to uh how to convey to locals that it's not a foreigner's party. You Mm -hmm. know, it's, we're doing it for, it's for everybody. And it's kind of specifically for, for them. Yeah. But they, they, you know, like when we did it in Vietnam, there really is a huge expat community there. And the local Vietnamese kids barely Mm. came out. They came out to see the Vietnamese bands.
0: Yeah. How do you do that? How do you make sure that when you're working in other countries that you are making sure that you're being inclusive of the people who are from there is it just about how you advertise it and how you talk about it
1: well that's what I thought um, and for example, in Vietnam, we did um, a lot of advertising that was only print and only in Vietnamese mm. that offered a discount you know specifically it was aimed mainly at students mm-hmm. you know um, but not that many people came out for it you know we i did have a few vietnamese people on our staff that you know were promoting to other vietnamese people with that but you know we're we're trying to do we're 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 scouting locations in africa actually right now and planning to do an event there at the end of 2024 and it's pretty clear to me that one of the most important things that i can do to Involve the local community is just to make sure that there's a lot of local bands playing for one Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or all of them. In the case of like we're we're looking at Nairobi, Kenya as a possible location for our uh, November 2024 event. Um, And basically, yeah, I've just we were there in uh, a couple months ago, and I just went out of my way to meet all of the bands Um, and. And then um, the other thing that I realized is that if we can get the foreign bands that do come to learn music by the bands that people in those countries know, even if they completely reinterpret it, you know that will get them excited. Mm-hmm. And there's a video on YouTube that everybody should look up. It's it's just look up the X with E X um, Ethiopia. And there's this band from Amsterdam called The X, who plays a show in a small town in Ethiopia, to a huge crowd of Ethiopians, and they're playing like a rock band uh, formation, you know, guitar, bass, drums, which is very rare in Ethiopia. Um, You know, Ethiopian musicians play on different different instruments, you know, Mm -hmm. but they. They start playing and the crowd is just kind of looking at them like, hmm. but then they're playing an Ethiopian classic song, and when the crowd when the crowd catches on to that, they they go crazy, hmm. you know, and they get into it and start doing these incredible dances, and that is a big inspiration for We're Loud Fest.
0: Yeah, can you tell me more about your personal interest in? this internationalism and working in all of these different countries obviously there's probably a lot of challenges logistically of working in a different country a different continent every year so just for you as a person why are you so interested in seeing so much and working in so much of the world so broadly
1: i don't know i'm flashing back to being a little kid with a globe and just like one of my favorite things to do to pass the time was just spin it and close my eyes and put the finger on it, you know, I've always been interested in other parts of the world, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, and my mother's from Italy and, you know, uh, i grew up realizing that I was very, um, disconnected from my, uh, my culture, my Italian culture. And that's part of the, that's part of what made me want to go, back over there and another thing I've, honestly is kind of disillusionment and disappointment with this country because I was growing up um, as a as an 18 year old kid not able to go see bands play you know not able to drink a beer you know because I wasn't 21 yet when I went over to Italy and, or to Europe and I could do all of those things freely and I felt f- way more free over there than I ever did in the United States. So yeah, that led to, the other thing is, you know, they they also drill into your head that this is a first world country from from a very young age. And I traveled to Japan and Europe and, you know, they don't have the death penalty. They have public transportation that's amazing. They have um, universal health care, those are first world countries. And to me, the United States is still kind of a second world country.
0: Yeah. I think the lack of travel for a lot of people who are from America and never leave America and don't have any understanding uh, that there is a world outside of the United States makes it very easy for them to just accept that at face value of, Oh, like the propaganda of, Oh, this is the best country in the world. I think really is, uh, you know, imprinted on us at a very young age. And then a lot of Americans just don't, travel outside of the United States so they don't have anything to compare it to. so it's very easy to just stay in that uh, that belief for your entire life if you never go out to see anything else. So that does make sense that the more you travel the more you uh, you know have things to compare.
1: Well yeah definitely and nowadays it's less necessary to travel you know I mean um, we're one of the only countries on the planet where there are mass shootings on a regular basis. That's another reason this is not a first world country in my view, you know, and you don't have to travel to notice that in, you know, those don't happen in Canada or in even in Canada, our neighbor, you know, to me, uh, you know, we live part time in Mexico as well. And to me, Mexico is not, you know, it's also a second world country to me. You know, there's a lot of problems that Mexico has that other countries have solved already, you know, in Europe, especially, in Japan, in, in Canada. And if you look at, I mean, if you look at the, uh, just look up on the internet, the, the best countries to live in or the happiest countries, and you'll see them, you know, or the most democratic countries, you'll see that um, the United States is not, <laughs> we're not that, we're not that high on highly. that list, yeah. And when we were traveling in Africa people here were telling us oh be careful you're going to get your head cut off and stuff like that which is offensive you know and you know i I'd, I'd always put them point them to the same thing like look up the safest countries on earth the united states ranks like 125th and we were in kenya which ranks like 89th so tech, statistically um there's a lot of african countries that are safer than the united states
3: yeah
0: uh, I want to bring it back to Reno a little bit and ask you more about Debaucherino, which is coming up this next weekend. Uh, but first, why don't you like electronic music? <laughs> tell tell me about your uh, your preference for rock and roll and punk rock, and your aversion to electronic music. Just curious.
1: Well, somebody argued to me once that electronic music wasn't music, and and they convinced me <laughs> with this with one very simple argument. Mm-hmm. It's If it's music, then uh, then sing me your favorite song. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. Mm. It's going to be very... I maybe you can... I'm sure you can. <laughs> I'm sure you could do it. But, you know, it's not... Electronica is not made up of songs. It's made up of beats mm. that a lot of people have a lot of fun dancing to. Cool. I think that's a good thing. But... I don't like it. Yeah. Do you think it's I a, like is, music yeah. uh, played by humans on instruments? I was going to ask specifically.
0: It, is, it, is it the human element that when you see like electronic music, like quote unquote performed live, you are seeing someone operate a music making machine? But when you see a band perform live, you're seeing someone play an instrument, right? Is, that, is yeah. that the difference that you don't think of a computer or well, a, a synthesizer or whatever as an instrument in the same way that more traditional like string and wind instruments are?
1: Well, no, here's, the, here's a very important distinction we should make. Devo, for example, is an electronic music band that I love mm-hmm. because they play electronic instruments. Humans playing instruments, that's the recurring theme. Mm. What I dislike are these computerized beats. You know, I had more respect for electronica in the 90s when it was mostly made by uh, turntablists playing vinyl records you know and mixing them mm-hmm. in amazing ways i still didn't really care for it musically back then but i had more respect for it nowadays we're talking about guys with computers and 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 you know laptops and usb sticks and stuff and and you know and, and i'm a dj as well but i dj with vinyl records mm. so i'm carrying i'm lugging these records around you know and i'm seeing these other dj's through these electronica dj's um, who show up to their gigs with like a little backpack you know and they get paid 10 times what i do mm. you know and that's one of the reasons i have a i kind of despise it as well but <laughs> got it got that's it another
0: so i so i'm guessing there's not a lot of electronic music at debocherino uh, none whatsoever no. well
1: <laughs> maybe some electronic music sure like clarko right. i would call them an electronic music band, yeah. but he's playing instruments. Gotcha. You so, know.
0: Yeah, so tell me a little bit more about the bands that are gonna be at DeBotterino. It's next weekend, you mentioned it's at Wingfield Park and at Cypress. Uh, who can people expect to see, and kind of what's the background of some of these bands? Some of your favorites, maybe.
1: Yeah, well, um, one of the bands that I'm most excited to see is The Zeros. They've been playing since 1976. They're from Chula Vista, California. Right, right by San Diego right by the border with uh, Mexico um, they've been referred to as the Mexican Ramones which is kind of I don't know I, I could see them even being offended by <laughs> but um, they all are Amer- Mexican Americans but what they're trying to do is doesn't really have much to do with them their being Mexican um, or of Mexican origin mm-hmm. um, they're Uh, amazing power pop rock and roll band they have like a very uh, snotty um, energy Um, very ornery but at the same time like poppy energy to their songs that I that I love and I can't wait to see them play they've been playing since 1976 and an interesting tidbit is they were the very first punk band from out of Reno to play in Reno. Huh. In 1980, they played with, uh, at, on Kitsky Lane with seven seconds opening up for them playing their second show. <laughs> so, they're very excited to come back to Reno. We're very excited to have them. I'm very excited to see them. I've never seen them play. Another band that's from 1976, that's been playing since 1976, is the kids. They're from Belgium and they're one of Europe's first punk bands. probably definitely one of Belgium's first punk bands and we have brought them we have had, we've booked them on various occasions in various countries they were on the first We're Loud Fest in Athens um, and we've also brought them to Mexico and Istanbul and to Italy um, so they haven't been to the United States since 2016 so we're bringing them, to, bringing them for the first time in over o- almost 10 years Starting in Reno, very excited for that. They're old guys, but they put on a killer show. Um, They get everything they can on stage, and it's still great. Um, The Mummies, who I tried for years to bring to Reno. over took me 10 years to finally convince them. They played here five years ago for our 25th anniversary party. And they're coming back. Right on. Um, they're amazing on stage. Um, they're not to be missed. Excellent. All these bands are playing at Wingfield Park, by the way, uh, in the amphitheater, which is an old dream. I think you said you had Brad Bynum on here recently. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, on the last live episode.
1: An old dream to do a show at Wingfield Park. I never thought they would let us have like rock and roll and punk rock mm-hmm. at Wingfield Park. But Brad did a did an event there as a benefit for his partner, and and then I called him up a couple years later during the pandemic and uh, picked his brain about it, and uh, and that's how this whole started. Awesome. So and how
3: yeah?
0: How can people uh, how can people get tickets? Uh, what are the details of the show? It's it's the 16th, 17th, 18th. So that's next weekend from when this is being released. Where can people get tickets? How, do, how does it work? Can you go to m- both of the venues? Uh, what are the, the details that people need to know?
1: Yeah. Um, well, you can just walk up to Wingfield Park and get tickets, but it's best to pick them up in advance because there is a full pass, which includes also the events that are happening at Cyprus, and it's almost sold out. Um, Cyprus, we're going to be at Wingfield first, and Cyprus second, the, as the after-party venue, on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, 16, 17, and 18. Um, we're almost sold out of those full passes, so if you want to attend the events at Cyprus as well, pick up a ticket at uh, sloven.ly Reno. You're going to be posting a link or something? Yeah,
0: yeah, I'll put, I'll put a link in the show notes and on the social media stuff for, for sure.
1: Okay, Yeah. Yeah, you can pick them up on our website there. Um, or you can just walk up and get a, get a pass. The other pass that's available is a park pass, which is just gives you access to the events at Wingfield Park.
0: Excellent. Uh, what did we miss? What else do you want people to know about uh, you, the work you're doing, the debaucherino, uh, the sticker guy, anything that we didn't cover you want listeners to know?
1: I'll just rattle off some of the other bands that are playing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very excited. We have seven local bands on the bill. Really killer bands. We've got the, we've got the Saturday Nights, Pussy Valore, Spitting Image, Rotary Club, the Juveniles, Eddie and the Subtitles, um, and um, God, I don't have a list in front of me, but those are just some of them. We we also got the Two Alloys, amazing band. I saw in L.A. recently, come driving all the way up. Um, We've got this, the Deadbolt from San Diego, uh, the, uh, the Aqumonics and the Troublemakers, who are also celebrating 30 years as a band. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a great time. We've got DJs coming. Jello Biafra is going to be DJing for us. Um, we've got Tony the Tiger, amazing garage rock DJ. Um, we've got Vivi coming up from Las Vegas, and Omar and Olaf, and we got Staxo Wax, local DJ, uh, Jamal, everybody knows Jamal, and 50 Spence, Spencer Benavides, who used to be local, he's, but he's living up in Seattle now, he's a record digger extraordinaire. Bunch of DJs, but we're also going to have uh, drinks at the park, food trucks, record fair, vendors, gonna be fun
0: we always like to do a, a little bit of q a opportunity for our live episodes does anyone in our audience will or anyone in our audience have questions for pete about
4: the the work that he's doing it wasn't a question it was more a comment i was going to say you answered my question so when you talked about i think it, was it naples that you had an event in the basement that's the solution to the museum problem like, you don't have to tear down the old building and make a new one. Lots of people make museums out of old buildings. They refurbish them, make them prettier, just do stuff, but the building doesn't... I was just, just going to say that you answered my question. In the end. Yeah, yeah.
1: I would be more interested in going to the art museum if it were in those historical buildings that they tore down, you know, or if maybe they built around them or added on to them or whatever, you know. To me, that's a lot more interesting... Is what they should be doing.
2: Yeah, Will, you said you had a question too. Yeah, first of all, I just want to say how appreciative I am not only of uh, you folks holding this interview here tonight, but uh, more particularly of Pete and all the wonderful things he's done in, in this community over the many decades to make it this this really vibrant, conscientious, creative uh, community for everybody, uh, even more so. And I don't know if it's just that I'm. Um, at the age where I uh, oftentimes think back in the day, and back in the day for me is the 90s, mm-hmm. or if there was something truly unique and um, interesting about the 90s here in Reno, I know particularly in the punk rock and the hardcore, just more generally the countercultural scene, uh, Reno was known for things on some level. Earlier in our conversation tonight, you talked about. Uh, how bands would come up here uh, to have a good good time. Easy to find out ways to have a good time in the community, but I imagine that Reno was potentially providing something that other communities weren't. And then we all know that Reno is, has a unique reputation for better or for worse, uh, you know, uh, you know, across uh, across a larger area. So, with that said, I guess my question is, do you find that Reno during the '90s? was this really unique community if so why so i guess that's kind of a loaded question so what was unique about reno in the 90s uh and what do you think led to that
1: Hmm. i mean it was unique to the people from that were visiting from out of town because of all the casino culture you know um that was kind of the i mean the and, and the, the enthusiasm from the locals, you know, because there wasn't any other option, you know. There wasn't, they didn't have something like now. Thankfully, they have the Holland Project now where they can go and see bands if you're, you know, if you're, if, if you're under 21, you can go and check out bands at the Holland Project. Um, well, actually, nowadays, I have to say that they've also, feel like the authorities have kind of taken a chill pill on the, on the whole uh, 21 and over thing you know because something I should have mentioned is that the debaucherino, all of the events are all ages including the ones at Cyprus mm-hmm. um, Something that's something that would have been impossible uh, in the 90s because I tried to do all ages events with alcohol and it was it was just impossible Yeah, maybe if you cordoned off you could have a small area, but even then, it was it was very difficult. Nowadays, that there's a lot more possibility for that. But but yeah, I mean, um, Reno was unique. But then again, when I traveled around the country, I realized that it was not very not very different from most con- most cities in the in the Western USA. You know, aside from like. San Francisco, pretty much. I felt like it wasn't even that different from Los Angeles because to me, Los Angeles is just kind of like a giant strip mall with some beaches, you know. Except it's got a lot more culture, you know. Awesome.
0: Well, uh, let's see. Any other questions from our audience for Pete? Oh, got one up here. Come on up. Yeah, we'll let you talk talk into the mic. You can talk into it. Come on up. What's your name? Adam. Adam, welcome.
2: So in all these, like, festivals they put on all the role of, like, local communities and stuff, I've been
0: more impressed by, like, the similarities or differences in, like, the different communities and the people there.
1: Definitely the similarities because, you know, the underground or independent music community... Um, well, because of the community that there is, that that's the similarity that I found. It's like everywhere, it's sort of the same story, you know. Everybody who plays in bands and who organizes uh, music events, everybody's—they're all friends, you know. They all know each other, okay. especially when um, the scene is smaller. You know? Okay. So, thank you. Thank you. All right. Any other
0: questions from audience? No. Cool. Right on. Well, thanks for coming on the show and thanks for coming back to Reno. I know that you, you've you left Reno to travel around and you're doing a lot of stuff around the world, but I'm glad that you still have a connection to this community and these musicians and are bringing live music uh, in a way that's accessible and fun and brings a lot of bands both locally and from out of town. I think that's really important stuff. So I'm glad that uh, they have maintained that connection with Reno uh, after all these years, 30 years later. It's ex- exciting that you're still doing the stuff here.
1: Yeah, me too. And thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. I'm digging your show.
0: I appreciate that. And thank you to to Will and Black Rabbit Mead for letting us do these live episodes here. It's always fun to be able to have a live audience in a different kind of environment. And uh, so thank you so much to Will from Black Rabbit Mead and everyone who's listening, everyone in our audience tonight, and folks who are listening online as well. Appreciate all the support.
1: Right on. Thanks again. That's it. We did it.
0: Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. And special thanks to Pete Vincetti for coming on the podcast and Will and Black Rabbit Mead for giving us a place to record these live episodes. Always a ton of fun to do these about once a month. Our next episode, normal episode, is going to be on Tuesday. That is with Will Durham from the Nevada Neon Project. We had a really great conversation about neon art, preservation, the potential of a neon museum. We talked about neon as the state element, which Will helped make happen and the importance of neon art throughout the state. That episode will be out this coming Tuesday. Please make sure to subscribe to Renoites wherever you get your podcasts. Come visit me at the Riverside Farmers Market. I will be there most Sunday mornings at Idlewild Park. Stop by, grab some stickers, say hello, let me know what guests you want to hear on the show. That is mostly an opportunity for me just to meet with folks in the community. So be sure to stop by and say, hey. And that's all I've got for you this week. See you next time.